Hi everyone, welcome to the Better Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omar Akhtar. In this podcast, I talk with various experts to find better ways of addressing chronic disease. I hope you find this content beneficial. In this episode, I speak with Eleni Odalagana about polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. PCOS is the number one cause of infertility in the United States and it affects nearly 5 million women of reproductive age. The name can sometimes be a misnomer because it doesn't stress on the insulin resistance and inflammation underlying this condition. We discuss all this and more. Now, let's head over to the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm extremely excited to be speaking with Eleni today. Eleni is a registered dietitian. She specializes in women's health and polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. More specifically, supporting women to make nutrition and lifestyle changes using holistic, integrative, and functional nutrition approaches. Eleni is passionate about shifting healthcare for women and works to empower females when it comes to advocating for their health. Wellness isn't just a job to her, but a way of life. She has traveled around the globe to study various diets, sustainability, plant medicine, and to immerse herself in different food cultures. As an educator and professional in the wellness space, Eleni commits to providing sound and impactful nutritional education. She continues to work towards marrying the principles of healthy living and eco-conscious living through client care, online platforms, and volunteer work. So thank you, Eleni, for joining me, and I'm excited to speak with you today. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So we uh, are talking about PCOS today, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it's such an important topic because there, statistically, there are around about maybe six to seven percent, or even more, um, women around the United States with PCOS, and that can translate into about five million women or so, from the statistics that I saw. And that number is probably higher with the number of. Uh, undiagnosed women out there. So it's kind of sobering as to how, you know, how prevalent this problem is. It's the number one cause of infertility in females. And it's just something that I think needs a better approach when it's tackled. Um, and it just doesn't have that better approach right now. So we're going to be diving into that. And I'd love to get your perspective on it and all your experience with it. So let me start by asking you, what led you down this journey of specializing in PCOS and why is it such an important topic to you? Yeah. So I think like um, many of us, maybe more holistic practitioners or some sort of personal story behind it, or maybe a personal drive. So um, I was diagnosed with PCOS uh, quite a while back at this point. And, you know, I just remember the doctor's gave me medication. And that was the answer, like metformin, birth control, spironolactone. And then I also had anxiety and thyroid medication. So I was on, you know, five medications in my teens. And it was just like, this is, this is it. Like, this is what you do. Um, you're probably going to have trouble getting pregnant. So when that comes, just let us know, we'll probably do fertility treatment. And so when you're telling like a, you know, 16, 17 year old, that it's kind of scary, especially because I grew up pretty healthy, grew up in a healthy household. And so it got me thinking, well, you know, after being on the medication, not feeling better, symptoms still getting pretty, pretty, you know, almost worse being on the metformin and birth control. I said, well, there's got to be another way, a different approach. So at that point I was, you know, entering college, really passionate about food, nutrition. Um, 
so I said, wait a second, I'm going to school for nutrition. I'm taking all these medications. Like what if I tried to tackle this more holistically through supplementation? Um, my mom was a pretty big advocate too, for utilizing like naturopaths. She worked at an apothecary on the weekends growing up. So I'm really grateful for her as well. So, um, I started seeing a naturopathic doctor doing a lot of, um, nutritional changes on my own. And, um, I don't know. Some people believe this, some don't, but I truly believe I reversed my PCOS. Um, I don't have the diagnosis. I don't have the markers, but that doesn't mean I have a free for all life. You know, there is a genetic component to PCOS. So I, I still take care of my body. I watch my blood sugar, right? Like I'm managing my stress, doing things to support my hormones. Um, but it made me realize we don't have to become almost like victim to the diagnosis. And we don't have to label ourselves as like, I'm a PCOS or like, this is who I am. This is my identity. Cause I was able to break free of that. So when I actually became a dietitian, I knew that I wanted to work with the female population and I just wanted to show them there is more than just medication. And even if you're on medication, that's okay. Um, but I think it feels like a very like gloom and doom diagnosis when you're told like, this is the only way to manage it. And there are so many more ways. So, uh, that's a little bit about my story and journey. So I, I understand from like a patient level, how it feels to get the diagnosis, um, to deal with the symptoms and then and, you know, to, to see the science and uh, what can support us too. Yeah, it's very uh, unique when you as a practitioner are able to, and, and when you have the diagnosis and you're treating that same diagnosis that you have or have had in the past, because you have this unique perspective that other people don't have. And you can truly empathize with that patient because you've literally felt what they are feeling with that diagnosis and that illness. And so I, I think that, you spoke to the difficulty that surrounds PCOS, which is that, you know, we've defined it in this way, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so the place that we're aligned with is that we know that there's a better overall approach, an approach that utilizes medications, but also utilizes other modalities and wants to incorporate other modalities as well. And so the one thing that you do when you label it polycystic ovarian syndrome is that you're not really mentioning in the title the underlying insulin resistance and the underlying metabolic problems that end up happening. And that gets sort of pushed to the, to the side a little bit. And then there's this stronger gynecological focus there. Whereas oftentimes, if you end up treating that underlying or you know improving that underlying issue of insulin resistance, you can get quite a bit of um, improvement in uh, the symptoms overall and in the illness, just like you did. So I just want to speak to that, to that diagnosis of how someone comes to the diagnosis of PCOS. And, you know, a lot of the criteria that we look at, and you can obviously speak to this is a elevated androgen level, like your testosterone and DHEA levels, uh, elevated insulin levels. When you check fasting insulin, um, or you know your hemoglobin A1C or your um, uh, your fasting glucose, so markers of insulin resistance, and then irregular periods, along with uh, ultrasonographic uh, confirmation with these uh, uh, cysts in the ovaries that you you see, but on some occasions don't see as well. So you have this pattern of insulin resistance and high androgens, but you don't have cysts. And that's what can make the diagnosis very tricky because there's no um, exact way, you know, there's, there's a criteria and they're co continuously modifying that criteria, but there's no 
real one way to say that you have it or you don't. And that's what makes it challenging, I think, for both uh, patients and for, for providers, which is that, you know, unlike, let's say, Hashimoto's, where you could just say TPO antibodies or do a thyroid ultrasound, it's like, boom, it's, it's there or it's not there. It's pretty, can be pretty black and white in terms of the diagnosis, whereas PCOS, on the other hand, because it's more nuanced, it is a slightly harder diagnosis. So what are your thoughts around the diagnosis of it and getting to that point when someone has either some of these symptoms or all of these findings and symptoms? Yeah, I like how you brought that up because, you know, while we meet this diagnosis criteria, so women need to meet two out of the three to technically be diagnosed with PCOS, I, I feel like what I'm almost seeing in my clinic is, oh, you have these irregular cycles, like we'll just label it PCOS because we just don't really know what to do with it. So I think you bring up a really good point of instead of just labeling it as PCOS, because a lot of women don't actually have the cyst, but then they are attached to this diagnosis. We want to say, well, why do you have these metabolic markers or why do you have these high testosterone levels or why are you having these irregular cycles? So my hope is that maybe instead of using that criteria diagnosis as a be all end all, it's like, well, you have PCOS like symptoms, but how is your diet? How is your lifestyle, right? Like, have you been on oral contraceptives and did you just get off them? So what I'm trying to get at is there are multiple root causes of PCOS and those aren't well explained. And I find that a lot of women who end up getting the diagnosis, they actually feel much more empowered when they can understand a little bit more about the why instead of just labeling the symptoms. So, oh yeah, like I have a high carbohydrate diet or um, yeah, I've been on birth control for years and I got off of it and I've had an irregular cycle. So now my testosterone levels are high and I have an irregular cycle, right? That can sometimes happen when you get off oral contraceptive. So I just use some of these examples um, because I think with the, with the criteria diagnosis, it's almost a little outdated and um, maybe we can start um, looking at PCOS differently and how is modern day society contributing to more of these cases, right? Because we're seeing a rise. Well, why are we seeing a rise? Is it the toxins in our environment? Is it the poor food quality, right? So I can go on. I'll stop there, but hope that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, and I completely agree with you where I think that the the name is somewhat of a misnomer. Yeah. And so, you know, it's 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 a big struggle with patients because you're saying polycystic ovarian syndrome, but you're saying that the very thing that the name has, you may not have that, but you still have the diagnosis. So there's this kind of um, counterintuitive in a, in a sense. And if we were to call it, you know, insulin resistance syndrome or, or something along those lines that can encompass the metabolic abnormalities of the, of the illness, then I think that a lot more people can understand better um, because it's, it's very confusing to someone to be given this diagnosis and not have cysts or to have cysts and then be given this diagnosis and nothing else that we know is involved is, is actually the case. So um, I think the first step is in getting this part right. And if we do get that this part right, a lot more women can have just a better um, path forward, I think. So yeah, I'm glad that we touched on that. So when someone does get diagnosed with it, say they go through this criteria and they, you know, they have all the classical signs and symptoms, they have um, irregular periods, they have um, what we call hirsutism, which is, you know, hair growth uh, in places that there shouldn't be hair growth. If they have insulin resistance on the labs and they have high androgens as well. So now they've been diagnosed with it or labeled with it. Let's touch on how 
you mentioned right at the start how sort of the the medical environment treats that and especially for someone who's who's such a young woman to get that diagnosis and how it's treated versus maybe how it should be treated with the appropriate nuance and to also look at the the you know the psychosocial effect it has on a late teenager early 20s uh, female to be given a diagnosis where you you're told the high chance of infertility um that you know that you know you're going to be committed to these medications for the rest of your life and so what what are we getting wrong there and how can we look to fix that yeah such a such a powerful question i like how you mentioned the the psychosocial piece because that's not talked about a lot so you know i think for starters if somebody's coming in they're typically given like i mentioned um birth control and usually mm-hmm. metformin i would say those are the two yeah. common so the birth control is used to regulate the menstrual cycle, but um, Mm -hmm. we're not actually regulating the system. We're kind of putting a bandaid on Mm -hmm. it and we're promoting a fake bleed. Um, And then with something like metformin, we're working at that metabolic level, right? So to really get those insulin and blood sugar levels um, more balanced. And when we do that, it can help with other symptoms of PCOS because a lot of these um, symptoms related to high testosterone are actually triggered at that metabolic right. level, like those high insulin levels. So mm-hmm. when we're getting these medications, what we're not usually told is that both of these can actually disrupt the gut microbiome. So, um, mm-hmm. the bacteria in the gut and your bacteria play a huge role in, uh, metabolic regulation and insulin regulation, detoxification, um, and even hormone regulation. So I think it's really unfortunate that we're not kind of backing that up with other things. We're just automatically saying, oh, we're going to use medication, but maybe not replete what we could be depleting. So what I see a lot is these women are getting put on birth control at a young age. And then it's 10, 15 years later. And they're like, my IBS is bad. I get bad bloating. I get all these yeast infections. So their, their gut is distressed. Depression and anxiety. Depression, anxiety. With these these oral contraceptives. That's a huge uh, yeah. As well. We're getting our B vitamins are depleted, right? And oral contraceptives and even um, in our metformin, those play a big role in mental health, metabolic health, um, the ability to break down carbohydrates. Like what did I learn in nutritional biochem, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like how the carbohydrate right. metabolism works. So we're interrupting these natural cycles and what we should be doing is supporting them. And what I say is just kind of nudging the body to, to teach itself what it needs to do. Right. Um, right. So, and I do say to women all the time, like if you're not feeling confident because you're growing excess hair and your hair is falling out, like it's okay to be on these Medicaid. I was there. Like I wouldn't honestly have functioned because of that psychosocial impact, like being a teenager and losing your hair and getting this hair growth. Like I couldn't even focus on what I needed to do. So I did need some anxiety medication and I did need some of those medications before I could even think straight and say, okay, let me actually go to a naturopath. Let me actually you know, figure out. So in a way the symptoms were getting worse, but they were, um, helping me with confidence. So, um, kind of went off on a tangent there, but it is important, right? Um, we don't need to, medications aren't bad, but we need to know what they're doing to our bodies. Right. And I, I think we're not informing women of that. And then they're experiencing other, other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing I think that we could change going into the, the diagnosis is actually informing and saying, Hey, if you're be, if you're going to take metformin and birth control, take a probiotic, take a, you know, methylated B complex, um, do these little things, support your antioxidant mm-hmm. status. Yeah. And, you know, and then we also need to talk about nutrition and lifestyle 
it, it shouldn't be this one size fits all. It has to be low carb because not every female with PCOS has insulin resistance. And if you go too low carb, you can cause more issues, especially with, with hormones. So I think we just need to kind of update our nutrition approach to PCOS and not mm-hmm. create fear around whole fresh real foods like potatoes and bananas and other fruits, you know, but, but really talk about what is going to be supportive. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I do with women. I talk about like, how can we be more intentional with our decisions around nutrition and, you know, really talking about stress and stress can be not getting enough sleep, right? Like trying to work these mega hours and expecting your body's okay Mm -hmm. with little sleep and working 50 to 60 hours a week, you know, natural sunlight exposure. I think we have these foundational pieces to health that are just so overlooked and not talked about enough in our medical system here. So I'll pause there because that was kind of a lot. Um, Just see if that made sense. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you mentioned the nutrition piece and you mentioned updating your nutritional approach. I would argue from the medical side to even have a nutritional approach is, is a big, big deal because there really isn't that out there. And so it's, you know, it's quite remarkable if you go onto different websites in which they give um, sort of guidelines on treating PCOS and, you know, your, your algorithms and they'll mention like the, the symptom or the sign, and then they'll mention how to treat it. So you, you mentioned irregular periods, and then you'll say, oral contraceptives, you say acne and uh, hirsutism, irregular hair growth, and then you'll talk about the medication spironolactone or, you know, whatever your acne treatment is. But it's just remarkable that there won't be any mention of food or nutrition in that whole picture. You know, so again, you're, you're trying to deal with one condition with maybe five or six different a treatment approaches and, and that is usually medication. Um, whereas you know, nobody is really bothering to think one step be- before that, which is the nutritional problems that got someone there and can potentially get someone out of those those problems. And so just having that nutritional approach would be big enough, you know, is it's like, you know, let, let's even talk about um either lower carb or how you eat or you know, the, the mechanisms with which you first develop PCOS, because why are 16, 17, 20 year old females nowadays even developing PCOS? It's, 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 it's a valid question to ask. And, um, you know, is there anything in our diet and lifestyle that is contributing to that? And we know the answer to that is yes, but then when we do know that, then there isn't enough focus in, in that, um, in that realm. And so, um, so yeah, I, I wanted to talk about that. So when, when someone is diagnosed with PCOS and they're, they're coming to you for advice to, to start off with, what is the right approach nutritionally? And I wanted to just add one, one part to that question, which is, I often see this, um, especially with the nutritionist that I talk to this, this camp between let's say low carb or eating for insulin, you know, improving insulin resistance, you can include ketogenic diet in there as well versus the other side, which is not overly restricting carbohydrates and worried about disordered eating. So there are these two different camps and I've seen it manifest. Personally, what what I would say is when I recently had a patient who had, um, 
was pre once diagnosed with disordered eating, but right now when she came and saw me, she had significant insulin resistance. Like insulin levels were like above 35, you know, some of the highest I've ever seen. But so from my approach, it was this, let's try going lower carb and, you know, dealing with your gut issues, your bloating, your, um, your insulin resistance issues, because I do think that that is driving a lot of your inflammation and your, a lot of your problems. Okay. So let's do that versus the nutritionist that she was working with, which who, who was basically more concerned about that previous disordered eating issue. And the fact that if you go too low carb, you're going to, uh, you're going to, um, trigger disordered eating and so yeah. on. And so there was this little bit of friction there, but you know, what I would say is that the patient, when she did go very low carb, at least for a short while, felt great in terms of bloating, in terms of, so to me, I, I really want to know where you stand on this is between that, that, um, you know, the two sides of the spectrum of low, the benefits of lower carb versus this fear that a lot of people have of disordered eating. Yeah, I think that's, I love that you're bringing this up because women with PCOS are, are more likely to struggle with disordered eating. There's studies on this. Um, and, you know, I hear this all the time when I look at health histories and I always ask, what is your relationship with food? How are you brought up? And so it is important that they're getting that sort of like mental, emotional support and to see where that stems from. Um, but, you know, I really try to, I think first start with like a different language around food. So instead of making you feel like you have to be on low carb, let's first just focus on whole, real, fresh food. And, mm -hmm. you know, what comes to mind when you think of things like potatoes, sweet potato, you know, like these carb heavy foods. Um, mm -hmm. And then I try to bring in this very intentional approach of like, how are they um, added to the plate? How do you feel after you right. eat them? What times a day work better? So, um, I try to like recreate a relationship with this food, keeping in mind that there is a biological response going on in the body and we can't ignore that, but we also have to keep in mind that we're emotional beings, right? And we're going to feel things. So for instance, what I'll say is, you know, you're going to do better with carbs later in the day. Like your body's going to like them. And even having carbs at dinner can usually help us to not overeat and snack at night. So what that might look like is a half a cup to a cup of sweet potatoes or a half a cup of lentils. Um, and then I even use strategies of when are you eating the carbs? So try eating them last, because if you eat your carbs last, you're going to have a better blood sugar and insulin response. And we yeah. can even get into resistant starch foods. So try eating your potatoes, lentils, rice cold. If you eat it cold, it's not going to have as much of a spike. So, um, as you can see, you know, a half a cup of lentils at lunch and a half a cup of sweet potatoes or a cup of sweet potatoes at dinner, that's fairly lower carb, right? Maybe like 20 grams per meal, 25 grams. It's not a ton at the end of the day, right. but we get out of that low carb mentality and we feel, we find how to be satisfied. So if that kind of answers your question. So I go in very strategic of like, there's something physical going on in the body and we need to address that. Um, and that's why there's a lot of intention of how I work with clients and, mm -hmm. and that's where the education comes in, um, of how carbs can actually support you. But we do need to find that fine line of like where they're not working for your physical body right. and then always tune in to did that feel satisfying. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, fascinating and amazing to see these women that have had these disordered eating um, patterns or disordered relationships with food say, wow, I actually feel really good eating this way. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really labeling it low carb, but it is lower, right? Maybe lower than the average person. Um, but at the end of the day, I think as a society, we just eat too many carbs. Like 
we don't have to, we, we go into these labels of like, oh my God, low, high, but the, but we really just need to eat more whole fresh food in moderation. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And that naturally yeah. ends up just being lower carb, I find. Yeah. And I definitely agree with that uh, approach, which is kind of from the top down, you're, you're looking more a principled eating approach as opposed to the uh, nutritional labeling and, you know, let's, um, the, the different camps that form. And, and so I definitely agree with that. And I just, I, I think that sometimes, you know, there is, even when, when you're talking from a dietary perspective, there is a value in, uh, you know, slightly more, I mean, you should always start with the principled approach, which is let's focus on getting the refined carbohydrates, the, the processed foods, all that stuff, ultra processed foods out of your diet first, and then maybe go, go on to the more nuanced Mm -hmm. conversations. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I just find that there's sometimes a, a big hesitation from uh, certain uh, nutritional uh, professionals to even go towards you know lower carb because of that fear around disordered eating. So you know that that was very important for me to just touch on. Um, but I, I really like how you put it and how to really find the right carbohydrate intake for yourself, um, and then and then make sure you're feeling well eating what you're eating. And then, and that can be different for you and different for me. So, you know, the way you're eating might be, um, you know, not right for me and vice versa. And so I think that that's where that nuance comes in. Um, and so we just have to, you know, and that's where the synergy has to be there with, um, our medical professionals, nutritionists, everyone together, because, it is really a two-pronged approach or a multi-pronged approach. And if you're not using that, then, you know, generally you won't be too successful, at least in, in fixing the underlying issues. So um, I want to take that into supplementation a little bit. And what ends up happening is that, you know, we talked about medication and how your each symptom, each sign has one medication, two medications, you know, first line and second line to treat these issues, be it acne, be it menstrual irregularities. But what you mentioned uh, earlier was really just supporting these pathways instead of really blocking them. And medication oftentimes, you know, it's, it's extremely powerful and they can have profound effects, but they can often do that in a way that they block those natural pathways. Just like you mentioned, you get depleted with so many things when you take something like metformin and everything. And that's not to knock on metformin, but if you were to have someone with insulin resistance, there are certain supplements um, that you can take that that improve insulin levels and improve the, the resistance. You know, things like berberine, um, things like inositol, those types of things are, um, they're not very well known or popular with medical professionals, with MDs, because we're not trained in that way. We're not taught uh, these ways. So when you propose that, those supplements as an alternative to metformin, or let's try this first and then go on to metformin, you're often met with resistance and somewhat of a, you know, you're not practicing how we are the line of practicing that we're doing. And so, you know, I just think that, that there's, there's a, a lot of awareness that in, I think in your space is more so present, but in my space in the MD world is just um, not there so much. The, you know, the, the ability to use these natural supplements um, sometimes 
um, have uh, these herbal supplements and things like that that we can use in conjunction with medication. And, you know, it just comes from a place of not being trained in it. So there's this kind of belief that maybe it doesn't work. There's a belief that maybe it's not robust enough. But I just think that if for patients out there, you know, it's proven that it's the the most beneficial overall approach to, to sort of uh, uh, combine these two things together. And so uh, I definitely want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I think um, maybe it was in our last conversation, but it's this integrative approach, right? That's like what integrative medicine is. It's using all these different prongs and, and, you know, truly supporting the patient. So for instance, if somebody is on metformin and it's supporting them, well, um, you know, metformin works really well when you're making nutrition and lifestyle changes. So um, it's not one or the other. And, and, you know, if you eventually want to switch to a more holistic place and it's safe and you have a doctor supporting you with doing that, these herb, these, you know, herbal approaches um, or supplements can work just as effectively as long as you're doing the other work. And I always say to clients, I'm like supplements, they just kind of work in the background. So um, you're not going to probably see a change in like three to four days. You know, it's usually three to six months. And it means that we do have to be doing the other stuff, but they just sort of like nudge your body. And I've seen some incredible results with this, um, sort of approach. So like you mentioned, you know, an acetal, that's one of my favorites and it's completely safe to take with metformin. So I would say, you know, check with your doctor, make sure, but, um, that's a nice way to start integrating, you know, um, some of these, these options, like I mentioned, getting on a really good probiotic, doing a little bit of gut support, um, a little bit of liver support can be really important too, right? Detoxification. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely a fan and I think it's really individualized as well. Um, because what, what I often see is a lot of clients, you know, I bought this supplement because I follow somebody on Instagram or TikTok and they said that I should take this. Um, but I just encourage everybody who's listening to, a provider that's going to work with you because like you said, it's not a one size fits all and it's not a, this worked for me. So it's going to work for you. Like I'm even cautious of that just because certain things worked for me with my PS PCOS situation. I know that it's not necessarily going to work for one of my clients. So if you do choose to use supplementation, you know, do your research and definitely work with a provider that can guide you through a very specific, um, supplement protocol instead of like throwing together all this information and then seeing what works. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the problems you mentioned, this this um, culture around the wellness industry and how much it's grown. And so every XYZ person on Instagram, on these places are, you know, talking about certain supplements, promoting certain supplements. So I think when you're uh, maybe an MD and looking at it from the outside, you know, you kind of go like, whoa, you know, th- there is a blur in the lines between those that have been trained to do this versus those that are just picking this up. And so that's where some of the hesitation comes in. And that's where the, um, probably the, the, the cause of someone like me can, can be a big struggle because you have to both, you know, you're trying to both encourage that, you know, the, the supplementation, the natural approach, but also discourage the industry that has become the profitability that it's it's um, led to, because really then it just becomes no different than the than the pharmaceutical industry in a sense, and that's a whole different topic about you know supplementation, yes. the industry, the profits behind it. You're absolutely right. You should be working with someone who you know can can follow you, not someone who is 
just, you know, you've heard on a talk and recommending something and they have no clue who you are or what your health issues are. So certainly think that's very important. Um, I do want to talk to you about the groups that you do mm-hmm. and how, you know, we are finding now in, in medicine um, that the power of community, the power of people coming together in their struggles, their illnesses, whether that be just to make a simple diet lifestyle change or people with similar diagnoses to basically come together and bring about positive change. And so I feel that when you're doing groups and you can speak to that, where you have all these women coming together, they can support each other and make bigger changes than they would when they're working one-on-one. So I think it's a great model to use for providers where they are uh, trying to take that one-on-one approach and move it more towards a group setting. So definitely love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think you made a great point. It's, you know, people can make more progress together. And, you know, I, I was hearing over and over again, like, I feel so alone. My friends don't have this. And then, you know, a lot of questions around like, is this okay? Like, I'm not seeing the change as fast as I want and saying like, trust the process, things take time. So I, I think it felt um, that I was doing not a disservice because some people do better one-on-one, but I'm like, well, I'm getting these same questions. Women are feeling the same way. So they're going to feel so much better supported by a community with like-minded women. And I know, you know, for myself too, I felt like really embarrassed and alone because none of my friends had it. So then you're like hiding it more and you're not sticking to that good routine that works for you. So I've just seen, um, it's so, so cool. And the, the benefit of when they're together, because they do, they support each other, they back each other up, they give each other, you know, little tips that work for them. And I think most importantly, it's just a safe space where you can talk about this huge thing that's going on in your life and really feel heard. Right. Um, so I think that just calms like the stress and anxiety that comes with PCOS. And we know for stress and anxious, it's going to be harder to see results as well. So, um, seeing so much success in these small groups. And, and so essentially what we do is we gather and in that, in the group call, we do a lot of education. So they still get a little bit of one-on-one coaching. They can support each other, but that's where we're going through these, um, like foundational pillars that I believe truly support us in managing PCOS and managing those symptoms. So we have a theme to every single call. We're looking at things from nutrition to lifestyle. And what I tell my clients is I just want you to learn how to advocate for yourself, right? So you're also just going to learn about what's going on in your body and how your body systems are connected. So they learn a little bit about the thyroid. They learn a little bit about the gut, right? Just so they understand, oh, this makes more sense. Um, And then they do get two one-on-one calls with me. So they do get private coaching so that they still feel like at an individual level, if they need some supplementation, if they need a lab test, or if they just need to deep dive further with me, they also have the space to do that. So it's this really beautiful hybrid, um, to make sure their individual needs are met, but they're largely learning, um, in a community setting. And and I'm just like, Oh gosh, I wish I figured this out sooner, (laughs) but, um, it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Just bringing all these people together and Mm -hmm. then using your expertise to help them is so important. So I definitely encourage people to check that out and I'll put all the links, um, to your groups and your website in the notes below. But this is such a great conversation, I think, so needed and the the merging together of the different approaches, the medical approach, the nutrition approach. And, you know, if we don't have this, I think that we're going to be stuck in the same kind of cycle that we're stuck in, which is patients going to their uh, physicians and, you know, being put on medications at very young ages or um, just being put on medications for a very long time and then just 
not much after that, especially if they're not getting better. And so there just has to be this uh, better approach. And, you know, that's why this podcast is called Better Medicine. And so we're looking for better ways. And so, um, yeah, thank you for having this conversation with me and I look forward to more. Yeah. Thank you for providing, you know, a platform and, and being one of those, you know, medical providers who's you know, making change. And so thank you. Thank you for allowing me to talk a little bit about what I do. And um, I feel like we could have talked so much more about all the amazing topics you brought up today too. So I really appreciate it. Of course. If you liked this episode, please share with your friends and family, and please remember to subscribe so we can share this message with as many people as possible.